Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Are we, are we doing this? Yeah. Is it happening? We're, we're hot. We've been recording for days. I'm eating this donut. Let me finish my day. Hey. I had I two donuts. That was some king shit, by the way. Holy <laughs> I shit. I didn't even that. notice the second oh one. Oh, my. <laughs> yep. Uh, There's a lot of powder around here. <laughs> and donuts. <laughs> uh, thank you again for listening to Try Love. That Jeez. was the grossest thing I've ever let come I love how there's just like mouth. a barrier between you guys, this coffee. <laughs> just, thank God. You're going to spill it all over yourself in the middle of um, this. We are going to be talking about Stray Dog today, continuing the Kurosaga. Oh! oh I'm leaving. little circle, circle trademark. Oh, I love it. Bye. Uh, trademarks are in circles. are and uh, copyrights are. Uh, I will give a quick summary, one that I actually wrote. Let's for this go, movie, Jason. For Stray Dog, because I, I think I liked it more than uh, I Live in Fear or Hidden Fortress. Uh, yeah, yeah, I did too. I don't yeah. want to show my hand too much. I think it's one of my favorite. You just showed your hand. Caruso. Look at my hand. Both of them. They're gross. covered in white powder. It looks so weird. <laughs> uh, so, Stray Dog is 19, uh, didn't, oh, 1949. Yep. Uh, filmed by Akira Kurosawa, again, starring Toshiro Mifune. Uh, rookie detective Murakami, played by Toshiro Mifune, is a staunch rule follower. Uh, when his gun is stolen, his journey to get it back takes Murakami and veteran detective Sato, played by Takashi Shimura, familiar face, mm-hmm. uh, to the seedy underbelly of post-war Tokyo and hot on the trail of Yusa, played by Isao Kimura, a disturbed former soldier who's taken up the criminal lifestyle all before his gun is used to kill again. Well done. Thank you. All right. Script. Was that letterbox? No, that was me. Oh, that was you. Wow. Yeah. Jason Daphne is a little, it's a little problematic these days. Yeah. So I'm trying to, uh, trying to err on the side of... Remember when ownership. I called Cultures, Tribes, and the Valley Girl episode? That was problematic. Did I'm you? I'm sorry. I that, that one's not I'm published canceled. yet. We can, uh, we can edit that. Wow. Well, now people now we know. we have to edit this, too. <laughs> wow. Uh, so, Straight Dog, uh, I guess we can just start off with what we thought. Oh, wait. I didn't let anybody introduce themselves. I'm Jason. I'm Cody. I'm Harry. I'm John. Wow. Well done, John. Mackin. Patrick is my middle name. <laughs> <laughs> so, John Patrick Mackin, what did you think of Stray Dog? Oh, shit. People know my middle name now. That's not good. <laughs> you said it. Yeah. I can leave that out. I out my social security number. Just leave out everything. <laughs> what did I think of this movie? I loved it. Um, I'm going to be a little quiet on this one because I didn't get time to research it. And this is a very political heavy movie. Um, a lot of uh, post-war feelings going on in Japan and I don't know that aspect too well of the film but as far as aesthetics as far as just a pure character film I loved everything about it I loved the way it was shot I love film no- the way it pr- plays around with the film noir genre um, I even liked it uh, more than High and Low which I think is Kurosawa's was my favorite or one of my favorite film noir movies ever which is another noir of Kurosawa's but this one I think outdid it um, yeah there's a lot going on politically and it's something that is going to uh, make me revisit it again and again which I'm excited about Tony? Uh, I quite liked it as well. No real elaboration beyond that. I think it's... As far as where it ranks personally for me with the Akira Kurosawa filmography, I don't know, man. Like, top three or five-ish. 
I will continue to be diplomatic. I don't want to attach a firm number to it, uh, but I, re- I really did love it. And I'm, I knew that it would be something that I would want to revisit because stylistically it's um, a really pleasing thing to experience and look at. And I am really excited to jump into that world that he created. I'll, I'll go next. Uh, I really liked this movie. It Again, I haven't seen enough Kurosawa to rank it anywhere. I would love to see all of Kurosawa's films yeah, and like, put point. them in a ranking for myself. Just because I'll forget everything that I see the moment after I see it unless I put a number to it. Goldfish like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I really liked uh, the way that this movie is essentially like a sour buddy cop movie. And I guess it was like... I kind of formed that opinion before reading that that was a thing about this movie, is that it's, like, seen as a precursor to uh, buddy cop genres um, and and police uh, detective procedurals. Uh, I also really liked how it was shot. I know that's been a point of uh, commonality between a lot of us. I think there are many points in this movie at which um, it'll be really hard for me to choose which one's going to be the Twitter image for when we release this episode. because There are some astounding... Shots in this movie. Oh yeah, 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 I can yeah. think of three off the top of my head that are just what like are those? nothing. It's well, I'll I'll, I'll let him know, I'll let him know now, but they won't make sense uh, until later. One when he's um, with the woman from the um, I believe it's a brothel that she works at, and uh, uh, it's and a after he's cabaret. Tracked, yeah, yep. it's it's the first woman he meets. The woman oh, who I'm actually sorry. does oh. take the gun from right. him on the trolley. Uh, uh, she's a pickpocket. Yes, her 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 name is Ogin. No wait. Yes, her name is Ogan, and the actress's name is Teruko, Ki- Teruko Kishi. Right, okay. Anyway, uh, but uh, later in the movie, uh, after he's sort of tracked her down through Tokyo, he, she's a lead on where his gun might be, um, and they're laying down, and she remarks about, like, the sky and how she doesn't get to see it as often as she used to, and, like, the world is changing kind of thing. And it's, it's not a super, like, realistic-looking shot of the sky because it's, like, very bright stars, but it's just this angle of sort of, like, from the back of her head where she's got her hands cross behind her head laying down and he's and he's uh sort of like hunched near her trying to get information from her uh and they just both kind of like quietly I had hoped that that would be one of the shots that's one of the first ones uh another one is when uh Murakami is with uh Purumi Nakimi Namiki I'm sorry yes uh Yusa's girlfriend Mm -hmm. um uh, wannabe girlfriend. I don't. I don't think it's clear that they're. Is are it, they in a relationship? Wikipedia described her as his sweetheart. Okay, which is maybe sure. fair. Okay, yeah. so his sweetheart. Uh, and you and just said sweetheart. Continue. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and Murakami is trying to get information from her about where Yusa might be, and her mother's there too, trying to plead with her, but she's being very abstinent. She's you know in the throes of young love kind of thing, uh, and. There's a shot where she is given a dress. I forget where she gets the dress from. Uh, Yuma gives it to her. Uh, he um, robs in order to get That's the money right. to buy it. Yusa. Yusa. I'm sorry. Yeah. I wrote it as Yuma. 310 to Yusa. That must have been <laughs> what I was thinking of. Uh, but so she receives a dress, and it's a really rainy night in Tokyo, and uh, and she can't stand the sight of it, and it's thrown out the window. Uh, and it's getting all... No, it's, it's not thrown out the window. It's thrown on the ground. And then there's just this shot from outside the window where the rain is falling between them and they're all just sort of like despairing inside and you can see the window frame literally framing Murakami standing in the in the room such a beautiful it's unbelievable all that stuff I've talked about in the other Kurosawa movies where like I love how he frames stuff I love how he positions stuff Mm. just in full force in this movie which is crazy because it's way earlier than the other movies I'm talking about yeah I uh 
Sorry, that's a good transition for me. For me talk now. Uh, <laughs> I think that Stray Dog is like maybe the thesis of Kurosawa. Like, I think that this is maybe the touchstone you should watch if you want to understand what Kurosawa is all about and like mm. what he's thinking about and what he's talking about. Yeah. Um, this movie is like such a tour de force of like what is Kurosawa and like what he wants to like talk about. Like the way that this movie, first of all, uh, we talked about this after we saw it, Jason. It's It was made in 1949, and to engage that directly with post-World War II Japan in the moment of post-World War II Literally. Japan. And to think that this movie... Yeah, 1949. The, the war ended in 1945. That's an unbelievable yeah. turnaround. And this movie must have taken, like, what, probably a year end-to-end on shooting and editing you would think so, and, and production? Right? I mean, it's a, it's so a like, huge production. Literally. That baseball scene? News of, news of the war being over is is that... It's yeah. done. And then and then this movie is made. Like and, this and movie is released. A movie that psychologically deeply engages with what it means to be a veteran and what it means to return home and what that can do to a human being. Mm-hmm. It like it's unbelievable to me that this movie could have been made in nineteen forty nine. Like like that was the sort of thing that when I watched this movie I was like, Oh yeah, nineteen fifty seven, right? Like this is the sort of movie that like like you could make this movie in like you, I would have thought you would need a comfortable distance. To yeah. the, like I don't. I wonder how people reacted to this. Yeah, movie that's what I'm wondering too. Yeah, what, I, did Toho make this movie? Or? This was a Toho film. Yeah. Okay, well. I, I I hesitate to use the term ahead of its time because it is perfectly of its time. You know, it belongs where it is. It is, it is about something that ha- that has happened so freshly and was so recent in uh, national and cultural consciousness. It is wild. Like, I already really liked it just for a movie. Right. But then you texted me and said, Jason, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> this movie was made in 1949. It's unbelievable. Uh, and we should all say, like, obviously, like, we are four white dudes and, like, I'm I'm not an expert on Japanese history or, or Japanese uh, history and culture post-World War II. So, like, take that with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would have loved to have consulted with somebody who understood history and culture better than us. Um, but we didn't do that we can do redo episodes yeah uh but but that all that is to say that like this is a movie that is so fundamentally concerned with with the japanese national consciousness post-world war ii um and also like like you said it's it's of its time but it's also looking ahead i think this is a movie really concerned with what comes next mm-hmm. for japan and for people in general and what world war ii meant and and how it changed people um, and I think that the conclusions that it comes to are really fascinating and, and really um, deeply affecting in a way that makes this movie really, really special, in my, in my yeah, opinion. I, I do want to hear more about those conclusions because yeah. I can see sort of the, where this movie was leading, um, and I really appreciated all the themes that it was positing, but I don't know if I'm a smart enough man to have, like... <laughs> To piece together what it was saying in the end, so that's that's kind of why. Or, or maybe you're just you're you're more you're better at being skeptical of your own sort of takes than mm-hmm. I am, and I, I I like to rush to conclusions. Maybe. I have no confidence uh, ever. I get scared paying <laughs> the bus driver. <laughs> um, you're a good podcast host, then. <laughs> so that was what I liked about it. Uh, well, that was some. I, I, we kind of touched on the rest of it, the post-war themes, the sort of like the generational uh, interpretations of the war, which are. Really, really interesting. Per- interesting yeah, I, I have some more movie. solid conclusions about that uh, that I am probably not qualified to stay, say, but we'll get to those. But we will say them. Yeah, we will. <laughs> uh, so, what did, uh, where he went over? Did everybody get to say what they liked about? Yeah, the what? Movie? You, uh, what? What stuck? Do you, were there any shots in particular that stuck out to you, Cody? Um, I actually wanted to comment on the shots Jason selected because yeah. I liked both of those a lot, and they both reminded me of different things that I don't think derived any. 
clear influence. I mean, maybe they did. I can't speak to that. But the first one, um, when it uh, Mifune's detective and I already forgot her name. Harumi uh, Naki- Namiki. I'm sorry. Or yes. um, the the pickpocket at the beginning. Oh, Ogan is her Ogan. character's Ogan. name. They like they're sitting outside. He's been tailing her for a considerably long time. She brings out like a beer or something. They they have this really charming relationship all yeah. of a sudden because like <clears throat> he has been doggedly pursuing her uh, <laughs> for so long that he's sort of broken her down, which is his sort of signature, right? Is yeah, to just that's sort of, a specialty. Yeah, being annoying brute force. <laughs> yeah, uh, and they're sitting under the stars, and it made me think of. Um, Maybe it's a famous shot. Maybe it's just something I've seen a lot. But Castle in the Sky, um, they're in the that cave. I can't place oh, narrative so details, um, but it like looks like they're looking up at a night sky. There's the tw- I don't know. It, yeah. If no, I, I just, remember that shot. Me, yeah. Like the context is entirely different, um, but it just made me think of that. The s- staging of that was very very similar. Yeah. Well, I mean, in like. On a sort of elemental level, similar, right? Where like yeah. there's there, there's like a wistfulness to that, a sort yeah. of like looking forward or uncertainty. Yeah, that's really good. Um, and then the, I I'm a little more confident about this one, just with um, the identical nature of it. The dress outside in the rain, kind of framed by the interior of that apartment or wherever they're at. It made me think of Stalker. Um, the the room of of wishes. The just the shot of those three men sitting outside of the room and we're looking at them from inside the room but just like transposing that over here we're, we're outside looking at the wet dress mm-hmm. um, I, I gotta see I, Stalker Stalker is amazing um, and that shot was really great too I really like that one I'm glad you mentioned both of those and a, another example of Kurosawa's craft following from his ideas about about what he's doing with his movie mm-hmm. uh, the outside looking in um, which totally. is like a like a famous shot right yeah. but like um, <clears throat> the, just the idea of like introducing the possibility of, of outsideness, which is a, something that this movie is so incredibly um, interested in. Um, you know, after Murakami loses his gun, the way that he finds his gun again is by becoming a streetwalker, basically, right? Where, like, he's, he's told early on, like, you'll... Um, You'll, you'll find gun salesmen who sell stolen guns if you look desperate enough and you go to the right places. And then we get like a 20-minute, it felt like, sequence <laughs> of him just walking through Tokyo, becoming slowly and surely a, a more convincing uh, homeless person, basically, by actually becoming that person. That was my favorite. I think maybe my favorite scene of any Kurosawa movie, honestly. Wow. wow. I was like loved – yeah, that scene, and because I, I think I mentioned this on um, the uh, the Hidden Fortress podcast about how Kurosawa to me the best parts are just um, the visual poetry of everything and how he just kind of shows the actions of the characters and and had these long sequences of of silence and walking and facial close ups and stuff like that. Um, he just ex- executes that so well, and there's been so many directors who have done it since, um, like Sergio Leone and, mm-hmm. and Scorsese and all these people that have ripped off him doing that. Um, but that sequence, I think it was nine minutes is what I read, wow. of him walking around and just living in that environment, that post-war environment where you see people are actually just starting to move on with their lives. And you, you get to see, see what it's like to live um, in that specific time through that sequence. But it's also um, – providing so much storytelling. I mean, it's so um, significant to the actual story and, and him, um, like you said, uh, kind of living the life of that veteran. Yeah, so. it's, it's really well yeah. done. I, yeah, that's well said. I loved specifically what you're saying. It hits on it's so many buttons of what I loved about that scene specifically is that, like, it does show that, like, the world 
adjusting. It's like it, it's it's a lower class part of the uh, of the neighborhood that he's in, um, and he, it shows him in the background, sort of traipsing through and just trolling for clues. And then overlaid on top of it are just his paranoid, weird, yeah, buggy exactly. eyes yeah. flitting back and that forth. Was very oh, that lasts for a couple of minutes yeah. of this nine minute sequence, but. God, there's another really impactful uh, evocation of post World War II Japan in Battles Without Honor or Humanity, which is the first movie in the Yakuza Papers. Um, it's great movie, by the way. Uh, check that out. It was on Filmstruck. Briefly, which movie? R.I.P. Battles Without Honor or Humanity. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, That's also a song. <laughs> and like, I kept waiting for that character to. It is. That's it's the Kill Bill bum, Volume bum, One. Bum. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Which is, it was, yeah, yeah named after the movie. Sure. Uh, I kept waiting for Murakami to walk past that character. Like, yeah. it's, a, it's a really similar, uh, Battles Without Honor of Humanity depicts it more, like, even more grittily, like, mm. almost like a war zone in and of itself. Um, but uh, they do a really good job of establishing, like, the sort of liminal space right after a war and, like, how, like, all of these displaced people and all of these sort of, like, like migratory people and and people who who were already uh hard up and who existed and will continue to exist uh irrespective of of the war's effects yeah exactly mm-hmm. yeah and the, like you said the cross cutting between uh, um the city and him and just the the, the, the close ups of him and his eyes and you get to see the city and people's feet moving like that was just so brilliant. It, um, would, it would have been a noir shot if noir were like extended mm-hmm. by three and four minutes at a time because that's a shot yeah, that you yeah. could see like in front of Bogey's face for mm-hmm. you know ten seconds maybe but the way that this movie really leans into that specific shot for again like this whole scene I cannot uh, stress enough feels like half the movie mm-hmm. while you're watching Honestly, it definitely. Yes, because yeah. it is very yeah it's it's very a very way, strong way to both and characterize that early the world in the movie and him. too yeah and like before we get to the more typical buddy cop sort of Experience. This is before he's paired up with Sato. In a lot of ways, it's like Hidden Fortress, right? Where like, like before the adventure starts uh, in Hidden Fortress, we get the Picarest sort of like journey of the two lowly mm-hmm. characters. In this, before the plot starts, we get Murakami in the city, right? Uh, sort of like being exposed to an environment that that he both belongs to and doesn't belong to. Yeah, establishes a place, but not specifically and only through him kind of thing, you know? Like in the way Beyond that, him. Right. I don't want to go on too long about it. Is, is any of this uh, ringing any bells for you? Any light yeah. bulbs going off? Cutting? The only, um, I guess, asterisk I was going to put on, like, I the pacing uh, at the start of Stray Dog and Hidden Fortress is very similar, except in Stray Dog, we lead right away with him saying something along the lines of, I've lost my cold, or something like that. And just like, boom, we're off and running from there, kind of. It is a, it's a totally different characterization. Yeah. You're right. Um, because not only are we seeing this, this is an environment he chooses to an- enter out of personal responsibility, right? Like, he has this terrible... Uh, like anxiety that something is going to happen with his gun and it will be his fault and that sort of through line of personal responsibility and like what are we responsible for is the major theme of this movie Mm -hmm. i think right yeah yeah Yeah. i think you're right um and and contrast murakami with his partner um sato takashi shimura who is the the main character in seven samurai right Mm -hmm. he's a fantastic actor Um, he pops up all around yeah it was very rare for people to be carrying guns at this time in japan right is, that's what I read. Like it's so. Um, well, it's such a big deal for like for him specifically because he's a very staunch rule following. I mean, I bo- use both these words in my summary, but like 
Uh, and then he gets to the precinct, and a lot of the older generation doesn't seem as super, like, stressed about it as yeah. he does. Even Sato yes. is following along with him. It's is very important. It's, yeah. it's so good for characterizing that yeah. divide yes. between generations. Uh, Murakami in general is, like, the most earnest, like, stubborn, but, like, uh, um, virtuous individual. Incredible like, You know where I'm going with this. I don't even have to say it, but, like... <laughs> Kazuma Kiryu from the Yakuza <laughs> series is like a, definitely a, a touchstone. I can see uh, Murakami is like maybe one of my favorite characters in like my like favorite heroes in like film. Mm-hmm. I think like I really also Toshiro Mifune wears a white suit a lot in yeah. this. Which I distractingly, love. startlingly yeah. hot throughout yeah, this movie. Seriously. Like unbelievable. <laughs> I never uh, know it's him. Like in these movies, really? I live in fear. I didn't know it was him <laughs> throughout <laughs> most of the movie. Even when he dresses down to like yeah. Tiny Tim, he's still like just a beautiful handy. man. Yeah. Uh, it is. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think Murakami um, embodies like a, a lot of things that Mifune can evoke super well, but there's also an air of, like, not to say that some of his characters aren't naive, but there's like, he's the rookie and there's that sense of childlike, I just, he repeats things like, oh, just give me a hint. Just like, oh, yeah. like, tell me who I should be, oh, just give me a hint. And he's like, out of his depth, right? He's out of his depth. He, like, him the the doggedness as you mentioned of his like pursuit of suspects um which we see a lot of is also you can think of it as childlike just kind of closely tailing and he wins people over with that right exactly like, he wins yeah. people over just by how guileless he is like how yeah. how uh like completely um innocent <laughs> that he seems right mm-hmm. where it's like the idea that that he could have some sort of agenda is out of the question because of how like earnest this dude is. Yeah. He's like again going back to Ogin, who I think is. I mean, sh- for the plot, she's pretty important for that first hour or so because again, like he, he, he she's his first lead on where's done went. She actually, I think she pinched it off him and sold it into the tr- into the black market trade. Right. Um, and uh, just even their first interaction. Once it's, I couldn't find the actor's name, but it's not uh, Takashi. It is somebody else. The first cop he's paired up with again, an older gentleman. Um, who leads him to this place because he formerly knew this uh, this woman. Again, is her profession clear? Or was her former profession probably a prostitute? Ogin? I don't know. Ogin? I, didn't she, like, own a restaurant? Am I making that up? Because they, like, they're, like, at this restaurant. They're, like, kind of, like, waiting for her. Am I misremembering? Well, sure. They, I, know, I know that the structure they show up in is empty, aside from them. I don't right. remember exactly... Anyway, it's been it's a while pretty, since we've seen this right. movie. Unfortunately, it's pretty uh, irrelevant, honestly. But uh, right. so yeah. she gets there, and um, he is super deferential to her, super respectful, and she's just like got no time for him, kind of thing. They There's had like maybe a romantic tryst. Like they, it seemed like that that cop and she had had like some sort of relationship with one another. The first thing she see, she says when she sees him, this older gentleman who's uh, paired up with Murakami, is, uh, "I thought you'd kicked the bucket." Yeah, they have a really <laughs> great super interaction. Yeah. Oh my God. That was hilarious. It, it's, it's like a really fantastic. Like you could make a mo- like a uh, TV show out of this, and mm-hmm. like like sh- it it also serves to illustrate how different Murakami is from his superiors or from the previous generations, where like. They have this sort of comfortable uh, tit-a-tat, is that the phrase? Tit-a-tat. I don't know. Uh, back and forth uh, relationship with uh, the criminal class mm-hmm. where, like, they all know each other. It's sort of a closed circuit where, like, well, they, they go to each other for information and in in uh, um, in payment they maybe overlook things and uh, right. so on. Their, their relationship is colored mostly by because when Murakami finds out that it was this woman, Ogin, who 
uh, probably pinched it off him, punched, pinched the gun. I keep using pinched because it's such a good word for this t- for this time period. Um, but she stole his gun, and he finds out, and then this older detective is like, oh, I know her, but she, does, she doesn't wear dresses. She's, like, not known to wear dresses. She wears something else as part of her line of work, part of her profession, uh, and that's why he tags along. Um, I, I don't know. They're just their little fun relationship was very... It doesn't last super long. Uh, I think one of her last scenes is that one I was mentioning where they're staring up at the sky. Um, but, like, while they're there, it gets its most... We get our a lot of noir funny comedy kicks out yeah. of that. There's one specific line where um, uh, the older... And I, I really regret not being able to find his character's name. But the older detective says to Ogan, like, you know this guy, don't you? And points to the rookie. And she says, at my age, I've stopped noticing handsome young men. Yeah. And he just <laughs> walks away. Uh, and then just sh- very shortly after that, she starts... She's being hounded by these two men in her own shop, apparently, or her own home. Uh, and uh, she says, you're violating my civil rights. And he says... Uh, and the older older detective says, that's awful stylish language you've got there. And and she says, I can do better than that. And, she's, and he says, like what? And she says, in English... Bye-bye. Yeah. <laughs> so good. So yeah. fucking good. The, yeah. the beats of this movie work so well. Uh, mm-hmm. I, don't, I, I just wanted to gush over that interaction specifically because it's just so... I don't know. This movie for being a... It's the most colorful black and white movie I've ever seen. Maybe. Oh. Like, it's just so... Yeah. It, it did. It looked like flavor brown and, and gray. Yeah. What's that? There was... It, I don't know. To me, there's parts that looked like brownish and orangish and... It, it, it was, are, are you talking like literally color? Well, or yeah, just, b- both in like its visual presentation yeah. and in the way that it styles its characters and their interactions. Sure. Like, I mean, you get in Western filmmaking, you get a lot of that um, in that time with like really over the top characters or whatever. But this yeah. is like very much still a script that lends itself to the noir genre. That's just like sort of played with in ways that make it a lot more vibrant, I guess, than yeah, the genre uh, is known for. It follows up the, the Kurosawa sort of prevailing motif of characters being affected by their environments literally, too. Mm. Um, in this case, it's the hottest summer on record. Right? I was going to bring that up. I think that's the opening line of the movie, really? which is like a, a famous noir thing, but it's like, it was the hottest summer anybody had ever seen. And throughout the movie, we get to see how different characters act or react to this heat mm-hmm. uh, people eat popsicles people stop, fan themselves people like lay down in the heat they're commenting on the heat constantly mm-hmm. I think that might be half of the dialogue in the movie is comments on the heat it's, uh, yeah. Murakami wears his full suit coat everywhere he goes <laughs> yeah. it looks like he's gonna die uh, which is like perfect uh, his hair is just drenched in sweat everywhere he goes um, which adds to the suspense and like the tension be- that, yeah that and helps him blend in right during yeah. that first scene because mm-hmm. like when he goes undercover he gets very sweaty very quickly um that reminded me, remind me a lot of the Treasure of Sierra Madre at the beginning because it was just these very hot, yeah, sweaty. Absolutely. Yeah, and just like the city streets. Also, I know I bring up this movie all the time with the master. Uh, that's Hell yeah. the, the very beginning of that movie where Walking Phoenix is just, just bumbling around the city and trying to find someone to cling on to reminded me so much of that nine-minute sequence. And it, it does so much for uh, what we've talked about a little bit in Hidden Fortress, which is suggest a world outside of frame. Uh, this, is a, this is a movie very much about that world specifically, mm-hmm. about journeying into that world um, and and coming to different conclusions about that, right? Should we talk about uh, Yusa, or I where should we go? I was just about to say that's Please. a great pivot point. Yeah. I don't know how much I can say to really introduce sure. him. It, he is a, uh, a war... Is, is Murak, just to lay the groundwork, is Murakami also a veteran? Yes, that's okay, so. very important, actually. They they He and uh, Yusa, who is ultimately the sort of 
faux antagonist, I guess you could call him, of mm-hmm. this movie. Um, he's the one who ends up with the cult. He starts using it for criminal purposes. Robberies basically to murder. go on sprees, right? Yeah. Like, when he runs out of money, he robs somebody and at, at a certain point murders somebody with the Colt. Uh, also, the Colt, I believe, is, like, specifically a military firearm, mm-hmm. which Murakami might have L.A. Noir style brought back with him from the war, mm. which is, like, another sort of point because... Uh, Murakami's responsibility for this firearm is so personal and pointed, and he will do anything to get it back. In stark contrast to his uh, partner, Sato, who sort of sees the inequalities and injustices of society as something that are unavoidable or something that he has no part to play in. Mm -hmm. And he sees himself more as someone who punishes the bad guys, I think he says specifically. Um, there's a great scene right smack dab in the middle where Murakami and Sato discuss their respective um, criminal philosophies. Uh, Sato invites Murakami over. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when I said to you in the theater, I love Mindhunter. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but, uh, and they, they talk about that, and Murakami talks about how uh, criminals are created and how they have a responsibility to... Um, to sort of like deal with the system that creates criminality and and try to change it, mm-hmm. whereas uh, Sato says like you'll go crazy if you empathize with criminals. Like the yeah. point of this job is to punish and catch criminals, not to uh, undo a system that creates them or to think about that system. Right. And that's that's the nature of their relationship with one another. Well, that's even how the movie ends, right? Well, I mean, yes. not, not to spoil anything, but like one of the last lines is Sato telling. Uh, Murakami, like, you can't worry about every case. Just, like, bag them and tag them. You've got to think about the next one, right? Yep. Because there's always going to be a next one. It, yeah. Like, that and generation it, it pans is... out to the Tokyo uh, skyline, and we see countless homes and businesses and stories mm-hmm. <laughs> in the distance. Um, what is this What is this doing for you, Cody? Are you... Is this stuff you remember? Stuff that rings with you? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. John? Uh, yeah, like I said, I mean, I cannot wait to watch this again. Uh, oh, wait, this is not on Blu-ray. Well, I'll get a DVD at some point. But um, <laughs> You can still watch DVDs, you can I guess. Just, you, really? <laughs> the technology yeah. exists? They still work. That's my thoughts exactly. <laughs> yeah, I go to a pawn shop or something. Um, it's like VHS now. Um, anyways, yeah, I'll... <laughs> uh, I don't have much to say other than just the way it's shot. I, what, what was that one sequence? I mean, it's so blurry to me now, but I think there was the one sequence where they're at some – was that – that wasn't a brothel. I think it was a dance club or something. The cabaret. The cabaret, yeah. Um, those shots just fell out, fell out of a John Huston movie or something like that, and they just felt um, like uh, Kurosawa wanting to – I don't know if he was inspired by American Westerns or American Noir, um, but it really seemed like it um, and wanting to kind of do what maybe his influence his influences have done um, – like John Huston maybe or something like that. But, yeah, I yeah. just felt like complaining around with the genre. But, um, yeah, as far as the war stuff, I think I've said what I had to say. And I can't, I'm not going to comment on it. It's been it. good to have you on, John. Yeah. I'll, talk to you so, later. I'll see you later. Uh, well, I believe um, Murakami has a – he has a story in parallel with Yusa, the, the sort of spree uh, criminal that they end up chasing down, right? Yeah. Um, the, wait, sorry. No, you go. What? I'm thinking of the military bag that's stolen from both characters. I admittedly lost track okay, of the details fine. here a little um, bit. Yeah. So both Murakami and Yusa are veterans, uh, and they have parallel stories about what happened to them after the war, mm-hmm. where both of them, on their way home, had their belongings stolen from them. Um, okay. And where Murakami ended up taking that as motivation to join the police force, I believe, 
I don't remember exactly why. Yeah, I'm losing um, the details here too. But Yusa, uh, that became a, a point for him to become a, a criminal or, or a. Oh, it, it sort of became symbolic of his inability to cope with being back in society. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he builds like a ramshackle shack for himself. I think at his parents' house or his sister's house. Uh, yeah, I think it's his sister. And uh, and starts uh, courting Harumi uh, Namiki, his sweetheart, his uh, childhood love interest. One of the cabinet as sort dancers. of a, a, mm-hmm. a desperate way to to normalize himself. It seems clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some really heartbreaking scenes of reading uh, Yusa's diary about how like he saw a cat that was defenseless in the street, and like he was so mad at it for being defenseless that he killed it, uh, which is like straight out of Miss Lonely Hearts again. <laughs> uh, but um, and and so like to Sato, that's evidence of the um, interiority of character, or the sort of like uh, essence preceding existence of character, mm-hmm. where he's like, "Well, look, like Murakami, you and Yusa have the same backstory, and like, look what you did, and look what he did. So like, obviously, it's that he's bad and you're right. good. Whereas Murakami refuses to see it that way, and he says like he's able to understand where Yusa's coming from." And uh, that represents the generational divide between those two characters where uh, Sato, representing a sort of pre-war generation, is like, these things happen, they demonstrate interiority of character, and that's it. Whereas Murakami doesn't see it that way. He can empathize with the criminals. Right. Um, And that all culminates in that scene with Yusa where Murakami catches Yusa and is shot by his own cult and then they chase each other and man what a scene that is God, that, like the, the entirety of that scene is very tense stressful no music well there's diegetic music because they come upon a field that's outside of a girl's house where she's playing piano yeah, yeah. that's what um, gets Yusa to break down yeah, it's yeah, really interesting yep. the way that shot and edited because it is very. I um, thought you didn't have anything more to say about well, this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah go ahead. I forgot that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just actually going. But uh, no, the, the way that was shot, it, it felt um, very anticlimactic, even though it was like maybe the most high stakes scene of the entire piece. And yeah, the like uh, it, was, it was just very mundane, but there was so much going on, which is really interesting. It's like he's playing against poppy fields, I believe. Yeah. Uh, it's a, like a brilliant white flower. It um, is. I, it I think I leaned over and said, gorgeous. I love Metal Gear Solid 3. <laughs> yes, you did say that. It was very funny. Uh, thank you. Um, so was your mind hunter line. Just to repeat those. These are both funny. We're both funny We're so people. funny. Oh. Guys. I, I, remember, I was wondering what the commotion was because everybody like in front of you like turned back and started laughing at your at your good quips. Wait, <laughs> other, not true. other patrons? <laughs> we, got, we, got, uh, oh. we got a round of applause and they, they <laughs> <Yeah>. paused the <laughs> film. That's what people think when they talk in movies. They think that's going to happen. That's their fantasy um but <laughs> maybe anyways um I, uh, uh i like that we're talking about this final sequence um john you mentioned earlier that this felt like really colorful um and i think that jason said that but thank you what no you, you said the oranges and the browns and stuff oh that's because you said colorful yeah well okay we're all talking about color here uh on the podcast and uh the when i think about that climactic sequence I, like in my mind it is very vibrant and filled with color even though it's you know it, the whole thing was fun I was swear I could see blood right like, I was gonna say yeah, when I think of it right. I, th- I think color especially the city shots yeah, feel, yeah. Um, and I, I guess kind of alongside everything narratively that we've talked about thus far um, we've commented on how this uh, is I, I guess embodies certain qualities of noir um, that we can recognize but we as we've touched on it is it's the hot 
ass summer that everybody's kind of existing in. The bulk of the scenes that we've gone over up to now take place just in broad daylight. There's no interplay between like lightness and darkness or shadows or anything for the first half Ooh. of this movie, mm. for the most part. Um, there are ex- there are a few exceptions. Um, when uh, Murakami goes to that one club or whatever to... I'm forgetting her name, but she takes this Arumi. woman and... Is or no, it, are, are you thinking of the club? or are, Sorry, I'm thinking of the cabaret. And the, the before the cabaret. The, oh, I see. Uh, just like the bar or whatever. Okay. Um, like I, are I you thinking of Ogun? No. Uh, this is someone he takes in and later she's like having oh, a conversation right. with Sato. I don't know her name either. But, she is uh, the one who's running the, like he brings yes. her his, yes. his ration card. Ration card, yes. Yeah, she's, she's running the, the gun scam, the mm-hmm. gun yeah. selling scam. He busts her. It isn't until the or second... running, but you know. <laughs> it isn't until the, yeah, the second half or so of the film where we get like some early classic Kurosawa rain um, mm-hmm. that really paints some of these scenes with... Kurosawa brand. Uh, <laughs> some, some more... Uh, just like layering and, and shadows to some pretty heavy shot and the climactic sequence in the woods um, you know that, that forest in the water um, with lots of light bouncing off of different places mm-hmm. uh, is just a stark contrast to the hot ass first yeah. half of the film yep. yeah. it, uh, the, I don't know if I want to get to the end of that scene yet but that's where I was going to go but go ahead I'll, I'll start and you can correct me <laughs> <laughs> the end of that scene uh, it of course, um, Murakami is shot once uh, because there are three bullets left in his own gun that uh-huh. Yusa has. He wastes... You can go ahead and pour the coffee. He wastes the remaining two, uh, whether on purpose or by accident. It's not made clear, but he's uh, an affected war veteran, so he's... Mm-hmm. Uh, but And then uh, as Murakami tackles Yusa and handcuffs him... He begins weeping. Uh, right. Yusa begins because weeping. I think be specifically because he hears the kids, right? I was there about to say, because there's, there's a, a march of a children yeah. at a street nearby, and it, like the camera slowly pans up from Yusa to show these children, and then the scene just sort of ends, and they go back to... Well, the scene ends in, uh, with, with Murakami and Yusa laying with each other. Like, the, these two men lay together in this field. Uh, it's... Beautiful. Both yeah. bleeding. It's, uh, it's oh, unbelievable, and like just the idea that like here Murakami and Yusa, they're on they're on two opposite sides, but they're the same guy, right? Like they have the same story, mm-hmm. and <clears throat> Murakami knows that, and he's very affected by this experience. And we only get one more scene, right mm-hmm. after that with uh, them at the hospital. I think. Yeah, yep. and it's where where Murakami is very sad that things had to go this way. Mm-hmm. That yet that Yusa had to end up where he is, and that's where, like you said, Sato says, like, look, you can't dwell on these things. We have to, like, move on. There, are, there are more bad guys to catch, kid. Yep. Right, and and it moves on, and like that scene left such a sour taste in my mouth. Um, but I think. I think I it was supposed to. Yeah, I, I definitely saw it as um, the movie is not is telling you that like Sato is not particularly to be trusted. He's more to be like tolerated. His opinions are are the prevailing opinions of the generation. Yes, but not necessarily that you're supposed to empathize. Right. I I think that's an inter- that's a good way to characterize it, and it's it, he's an interesting character, right? Because like he is a mentor figure. And he is a good man. Like, he has children that he takes care of. He loves his wife. He he, lo- he does his job well. And he, he is kind to the criminals that he uh, interacts with and to Murakami. But he still fundamentally believes in the power dynamics that are in place in mm-hmm. that uh, 
society. And that is the generational shift between he and Murakami, is that he sees a categorical difference between himself and the criminals, and he is imposing that categorical difference on Murakami and on reality itself sort of through the job that he's doing. Yeah, I. it's coming to me now that I think it could be read as Sato is sort of... When Kurosawa was... Did he write this movie too? I don't know. Anyway, when he and or the people who were writing it were conceptualizing this film and directing it and creating it, saw American noir, or Western noir anyway, and sort of put that whole ethos, that whole pathos, into that character. And said, look at this. This is the way that we're representing. Fantastic, yeah. Like, the the light and the dark of humanity sort of thing. We're drawing clear parallel lines. But, like, in reality, Murakami's perception of things, where there is, a, like, a, a prism of different experiences that emerged from... Uh, from post-war, from World from the War World. II, right? Yeah. From living the exper- the same experiences of these people, maybe for the first time, like mm-hmm. I uh, said at one point. Yeah, I think that's that's just right uh, because I think that the the interaction between in the contrast between Murakami and Sato is the heart of this idea, right? Like, right. And and the I, the the difference being that Murakami can empathize because he has lived the experiences of that man, uh, whereas Sato hasn't, um, and. It's fascinating to me that that, and again, I'm maybe I'm talking on my ass here, but like, Kurosawa sees the traumas of World War II as like almost this sort of like very sad opportunity to maybe for the first time empathize with the marginalized. Like, there's this idea of a national tragedy being unifying in the sense that that Murakami, uh, maybe a privileged man, maybe a person from a different. Uh, class or, or part of society than, than somebody like uh, Yusa, who, who never had a dollar to his name, or a yen, or whatever. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Good try. God, terrible. Peso, I don't yeah, know. Not a pay. Come on. Just kidding. Um, but, but the idea that, that their shared experiences can give them something to build a bridge toward. Mm-hmm. Where, like, now that we have had these experiences, we can understand each other. And Murakami can understand the sort of the the criminals and why they do the way they do do the way they do do the things they do in a way that Sato can't and that can create a different sort of criminal justice or a different sort of understanding of what people are mm-hmm. um, it sort of the whole this, <clears throat> these are the moments when I remember this movie was made in 1949 four, four years after the war was officially over like literally to, to think that this movie had all that to say and that its director and creators had all that to say in such a short time span after this was actually, like, literally happening in the world, again, just blows my fucking mind. Yeah, It'd be interesting to see if there's any other movies about around the same subject around that time from yeah, other directors. Or at least yeah. take this nuanced an approach that it's, yeah. like, both showing the many different perspectives on, mm-hmm. on the outcome. Well, not the outcome necessarily, but, like, our responsibilities and our processing of yeah. the war and how like it is strictly defined by generation in many cases and uh, like <clears throat> yeah what things happen and how they affect people and how we play a part in those things and what that means for our responsibility for how we deal with those consequences right and 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 to depict the generational differences in that way um, this it's it's like this movie is like an appeal, right? It's it's an appeal for what we can be after World War II. It sort of like looks at like what happened and like how can we move forward. Uh, it makes the the ending heartbreaking, right? Um, because it it suggests that 
uh, in the absence of greater change, we might return to normalcy. Like our criminal, ju- our, the criminal justice system depicted here will return things to the way they were, um, which is terrible. But yeah. like maybe the maybe the movie's point is that it doesn't have to. Like we can be Murakami, and like we can we can use experiences like these as an engine for empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, well, one would hope. I think that's the hope that Kurosawa has in in creating this film. Is I'm going to talk less now because my voice is. I've got nothing to say, so <laughs> I don't give a shit if you talk. You, so you can talk less. Yeah. <laughs> Shut up. Um, no, you're doing great. I, I do. I do like Yusa's um, wailing as kind of a general punctuation mark uh, for the end of this film. Like the ending was relatively immediate. Um, it's just that child children proce- uh, processional where they're singing and then the Return of the King shot of um, the Murakami in a hospital bed with Gandalf looking on, and then that was basically <laughs> the, en- the end of it. Um, yeah, uh, Yusa really uh, kind of, he kind of tore me apart there yeah. at the end. Um, it is great performance from that actor, by the yes. way. Yeah, again. Isa Kimura. Yep. Yes. Wh- who, I just will take this opportunity to say, appeared in um, several other uh, Kurosawa films, including Ikiru, uh, Seven Samurai. He was in. Was he the lead in Ikiru? Uh, no, Sato or uh, yes. Ta- Takashi. That's right. Shimura. Yeah, yeah. I don't see yes, Ikiru. Is the trial in playing that? I don't think so. I own it, so we could. We do. Yeah, we watch, watch it. Uh, no, it's um, it's Takashi Shimura. Oh. Uh, he also yeah, we should watch it. Throne yeah. of Blood and High and Low. Very good actor. Thanks. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. I I don't know. This this movie was. I think it's deeply impactful. It's got mm. a, it maybe has the most effective and direct through line. Maybe that's why like I feel like a bit of a simpleton watching it and not really like mm-hmm. I want to get back to those conclusions that you said you had Harry about like I yeah or maybe you've already elucidated them uh, a bit but like putting those pieces together I feel like this movie helps a lot in in like portraying it I think again it helps that it is a product of 1949 and that it's like I don't have to think oh Kurosawa read these stories, heard these stories, and, like, compiled a story about them in retrospect. Like, this was this was contemporary. These were still the feelings of the time that were <clears throat> being represented in film. Mm-hmm. That's just, that's incredible to me. Yeah. I, I don't think there is a movie like that today that exists. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not, not from an American so, studio, yeah. Right. It's so ardently hopeful in what it's trying to do. Mm-hmm. Like, this is really, like, it's, it's a movie that's pleading for something. It's pleading for a better, something better to come out of the tragedy of World War II, right? You know, one of my favorite ways it does that, and I don't want to cut you no, off, please. but is with, uh, by again, there's the children at the end who are proceeding and just, like, not a care in the world, singing with their class or whatever. Uh, and then there's one other scene that I can remember that features children, and it's when they go to Sato's house, uh, and he's like, it's not much, but whatever. And the kids are just sleeping in the other room, and they all just kind of, like, they take a moment and they just see how, how like innocent it's and young and fresh and these children are. And like, you just see in their faces, like just like they're they're so moved by the wonder of young life, like uh, the idea, like the promise of it. Mm-hmm. Like they're all they're all so happy that it exists and that it's there. And like you can see their their own sort of like tragedies reflected in that that hope. Exactly. Uh, and yeah. You, and you know that Sato. And his generation is looking at it is looking at them differently than um, Murakami and his generation might be because Sato is seeing like oh these are either the good or bad people of the next of of, of the next twenty years where Murakami is like these these children are are anything they are moldable they are shapeable they are human you know it's just this movie mm-hmm. worked for me in a lot of in a lot of ways yeah for me as well um, and like I said I think sets a template for the existentialism of 
uh, Kurosawa to come, right? Like, this is a movie about the war between uh, essence preceding existence or existence preceding essence uh, in the sort of same template that would follow in movies like Seven Samurai or Mm -hmm. uh, Hidden Fortress or even Rashomon a year later. Um, A year later. Yeah. What? Wild. Yeah. Rashomon was Rashomon was 50? Yeah. Yeah, this felt much more contained, too, which I like. I like the kind of the simplicity, just character focus, um, very internally from the character's perspective type movie. Um, Obviously, much different um, approach than Seven Samurai. I haven't seen Rashomon, so maybe Rashomon's also just as contained and simple. But I like that because it gives Kurosawa... um, which he kind of does anyways in bigger films, but it gives him the the space to kind of focus on these very nuance, these um, brilliant nuances that he does so well, and focus on cinematography and lighting and stuff like that, um, and play around with uh, filmmaking styles that hasn't really been explored or touched at that time. So right, and yeah. I, I don't want to cut anybody off, but uh, I saw this back to back as a double bill with I Live in Fear, which I Live in Fear came first, right? It was the first of the. Set mm, I so live in fear. I think was fifty five. Yeah. No, I, I don't mean chronologically. Oh. I mean in, in the way that we watched it. Yes, it was. It was I okay. live in fear and then Stray Dog. So this was hell of a double feature. Yeah, yeah. it was it, amazing. These were the first two Kurosawa films I saw that were not of set in feudal Japan, or you know a concurrent sure. time. Uh, so it was a striking experience to see that both where those styles originated and how they were adapted to a, an urban setting and like a more modern. Where or how Kurosawa would have grown up and like the world that he would have known rather than like what he would have read about, I guess. Mm-hmm. I live in fear. I remember seeing that and and it felt so modern Japanese that movie. Like it seems like it was made today. A lot of the, the shots and the way it approached the subject matter and all that. Mm-hmm. Like, Interesting. I, yeah, I it seems so contemporary, and I just cannot believe it. And I think Stray Dog is the same way too. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just the the. Well, I mean, I live in fear will be a different app probably, but the ending <laughs> of that movie is just like I don't know if people. Or ready for that at the time, yeah. Like even today, that'd just be a crazy ending, yeah. Yeah, uh, and and <clears throat> sorry to get to get um, to sort of like transiently bring back the points that we've been hitting. Um, the idea of craft following um, from idea, like the fact that we choose that Kurosawa chose Murakami for this, and that we follow, like this is basically a POV movie, right? Like I think mm-hmm. Murakami is involved in every scene. Yeah. Um, and like the idea that we're always following him characterizes the things that we see in such a specific way. We're like we're seeing the world as depicted through Murakami's mind, and we're empathizing with the people in the movie the way that Murakami does mm-hmm. because of the the choice to characterize him in this way. And like I think that is that's so much the point of this movie, right? Is is the idea that like we're recasting and reshaping. Kind of the way Hidden Fortress did. We just talked about Hidden Fortress. That's why it's on my mind. Um, we're we're recasting the idea of a noir story or of a criminal justice story through this lens, through this uh, character who can see how these things happen, and and we can think about the history that shapes how people come to be without recourse or how uses mm-hmm. come to be. Because it's the same thing that could have happened to Murakami and might have, um, mm-hmm. but for the grace of whatever. Um, and and to to recast a, a classic story that way, uh, it it it's so pointed in what it's trying to accomplish. It's saying something, right? It's saying like this is the way we should think about these things, mm-hmm. both in film and in reality, right? Like this is a movie that is actually saying to me, like we have to reconsider how we think about criminal justice and how we think about criminality yeah. with a mind more toward empathy and away from 
punitive sort of retributive models. Um, and it does that through its depiction of the world itself and about about the world even outside of frame. Um, and, and the fact that Kurosawa can do that is, is unbelievable. In uh, 1949. Yeah, in 1949. Yeah. Uh, Kurosawa wasn't, himself wasn't a huge fan of this. Uh, what? After, like, kind of like after he had made it, he's more or less on record saying it was all technique and no substance. Um, <laughs> he, Some technique. <laughs> he he lightened up uh, a little bit and kind of um, I don't know conceded in a few areas uh, in his 1982 autobiography. He was praising how smooth the shooting was um, and how awesome the crew was. I uh, guess I did all right. Like yeah and <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah and um, it wasn't John Ford, but it was all right. <laughs> Like, the crew was apparently um, consistently offering to, like, put in later hours because everything was going so smoothly and so well. I wonder what the like – I don't group. know if you read about the, um, the, the, the temperature and the heat and all that, how much of that was manipulated or was it actually, like, shooting – like, Oh, I, I didn't read it all. Okay, that. yeah. I wonder what, the, what that was like on set. But, I mean, it's a fucking sweaty-looking movie. Yeah. So. <laughs> I wonder how much of that is, is him being sort of cagey, sort of like yeah. the James Baldwin style, like a novelist's best novel is yeah. their next novel. Right. Like, mm. Never That's satisfied. like every filmmaker says that. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it's it's funny, but, but like, every filmmaker is sort of an unreliable narrator about their movies, right? Yeah, yeah which is why, you know, I am not taking that as gospel. He's uh, probably his biggest... Critic. He yeah. was fucking wrong about Stray Dog. <laughs> yeah. This is yeah. maybe maybe my favorite Kurosawa film I've seen so far. It's up there for yeah. me as well. It's very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of a masterpiece, I think. Oh, def- uh, definitely. Uh, no matter how it ranks in his own filmography, yeah. it is like it belongs in, in that I, yeah. strata. Yeah. I think Seven Samurai might be my favorite. It's between that or Yojimbo, and Stray Dog might be my third, but... Um, seven, uh, did you like Seven Samurai as much? I or? love Seven yeah. Samurai. Um I don't know. It's interesting. That's a that's another. I think that's doing very Kurosawa things in a similar way to this movie, a uh, similar way of of taking a genre and shifting it just so so that we're thinking about other things and mm-hmm. so that we can use the genre typifiers for engendering empathy instead of uh, reestablishing norms. Uh, but S- that's since this was so early in Kurosawa's or at least his partnership with Toshiro Mifune, right? Mm-hmm. It was one of the first few, if not the first. Uh, I believe Drunken Angel was the first. Okay. Yeah. But this is an early one, for sure. Uh, is is that sort of engendering empathy and tweaking just so genres, is that the main thing that you think came from this movie and ended up in the rest of his movies, or did you do you see other parts of Stray Dog that oh, appeared in, in later movies, since he had a whole lot of movies? I do see a lot of Stray Dog and Seven Samurai and... Yeah. Uh, and even Redbeard, I think. And but, like, I think that just. I think that's. I don't know if that's so much just from Stray Dog. It's just a style of playing around with atmosphere and, and long silent sequences. Yeah, yeah, I just when I see Stray Dog, I think he was trying so much here, and he executed so much of it so well. Like it's hard for me not to question what uh, fr- what threads from this movie that he learned and that he sort of honed mm. appeared in later movies. I'm, I guess I'm failing to really pull more than the. Uh, empathy aspects and like his storytelling style. Sure, but yeah, I think who we frame and why, mm-hmm. and uh, who we follow and what it means, or like how how subject uh, affects framing or affects message. Um, you know, like I think that that like there's a direct through line from Stray Dog to Seven Samurai to Hidden Fortress about like 
choosing to focus on peasantry or choosing to focus on the marginalized and bring them into the story. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those follow. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, I was just saying. I think those themes um, <coughs> are extremely prominent in High and Low too, and stylistically, this feels a lot like High and Low. And Not just being film noirs, but just the the mood overall. And it's kind of it's kind of got a cynical feel to it. Maybe High and Low is a little more cynical, but hmm. um, yeah, I think they're they, they're a great double pairing together. I wish mm-hmm. the trial was playing that, but you know, yeah. doesn't have Mifune, so right. Yeah, um, yeah. I, Harry, the who we frame and why I think is um, the one of the big big things from this that we can carry through to other Kurosawa works um, and then just at its most basic um, just the idea of keeping the frame layered and busy um, keeping the frame engaging in some way whether it's uh, like the classic example is rain um, but then also just like layering it um, if you have multiple individuals in the shot um, the, the I think Sato's introductory scene um, where it's it's him Murakami, and then that um, that woman who's the that Murakami picks up, and Sato's having a conversation with her when Murakami. Oh, the, the ration card lady. Yeah, the ration card lady. Um, ration card. Lady. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. No, I right. I just yeah. Sure. That places it for me for sure. Um, just like they are layered in that kind of like front, middle, back that we've oh wow grow, yeah. that we've grown accustomed to to seeing. Um, and I th- believe if I me- if I remember correctly the. Um, uh, Yusa's sweetheart when she's in her apartment uh, and there's her mother and then Murakami also there. There's sort of the like conversational frames or scenes or shots where they're like speaking but like away from each other. There were traces of that early. Pointedly not looking at each other? Yeah. yeah. Um, they they didn't, they weren't as conscious as um, just like we get a lot of those like Yojimbo is a master class of that. Um, mm-hmm. But we definitely see early threads of that here. Yeah, and uh, I think thinking of the world outside the frame and how you can use the frame to establish that um, is masterfully done here, or or maybe masterfully is wrong. Maybe it's actually sort of like clunkily done. Yeah. Clunkily? <laughs> yeah. Uh, that clunkily. sounds almost like a slur. It's, I think, oh, God. Uh, <laughs> it might be Urban Dictionary, that shit. But, like, that, that nine-minute sequence, uh, is it, like, does such a good job, but it's also, like, so apparent. Uh, whereas I think that maybe in uh, future films like uh, Seven Samurai, he does it a little bit more invisibly. Uh, but but in every Kurosawa movie, you're thinking about the entire universe contained within the, the movie mm-hmm. instead of just to the story. At least I always did. And I, I think that that's a, um, a really um, conscious and, and sort of deliberate move on his part and it, it's cool to see how that developed over time as well yeah and that I should say I was curious about this but didn't bother to answer before we started the uh, <coughs> DP the cinematographer for um, Stray Dog also did Seven Samurai Throne of Blood High and Low Redbeard Ram etc mm, wow. so like I think that there is a lot of truth to what you're saying about like the way that the movie's themes and execution really play well together and it seems to be because Kurosawa and this cinematographer Asakazu Nakai really really knew what they were doing they were really in close yeah. communication High and Low is so fucking well shot like that might be my favorite um, cinematography wise my favorite of it. I don't know Stray Dogs it's hard to tell they're just yeah it's like now that I think about it fuck it man Stray Dogs they're is so good. beautiful and Seven Samurai they're all yeah. good yeah. The, the Kurosawa Nakai Toshiro dream team man like, yeah. what a lineup. Man, the, the murderer's man. row. There was a baseball scene. This nice. is, There's that a, was a good, really good baseball good scene. Yeah. Is, is uh, 
Murderers Row baseball thing? Yeah, it's, it's the 1960-something? Uh, in 30s. Um, was it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. I I yeah, you're right. It's referring to. I, I can't remember off. which year because... Whatever. But it was the Yankees. It was the Yankees, uh, yeah. Babe Ruth, Babe Ruth Lou Gehrig, um, et cetera. World Series winners. <laughs> and the rest. <laughs> and the rest. They're uh, all good. The hell is a baseball? There's a really good... Uh, <laughs> is that David Lynch it's a sport. Uh, it was almost David Lynch. I'm, I'm not going to do it. Okay. Baseball's the truly great American sport of our time. <laughs> Aaron would not approve of Your that. Your impression is uh, the best. <laughs> Cooper. Um, one, uh, unless anybody else wanted to jump in i was ready um, to close out so oh, go ahead oh well i i one more i guess technique i can't thinking back to our other kurosawa viewings um and maybe films that we've seen outside of trilon by kurosawa um the usage of like voiceover or inner monologue i can't uh like i'm having trouble placing other times that that's utilized or if kurosawa was just showing that in different ways in the future but there was that sort of kind of visual depiction of a game of Guess Who, where Murakami was in the train station, like, picking out uh, Yusa. Oh, it's so good. Right near the end. You, yeah, using the, just those couple of details. Okay, he's in. He's, like, 30 or in his 30s. Okay, I'm good. It's not these people. Uh, and oh, He's left-handed. Dirt, left-handed. And we keep cutting clothes. to Murakami's eyes, too, darting back and forth, trying to figure this out. Yeah, and he's yeah. got this inner monologue of him being a cop, which... I don't know. It, it was a great scene. And I, I, can you all remember any other times when? Am I forgetting? Like, I was trying to think of some. I can't. You know, I'm, what comes to mind is that a lot of the voiceover I've seen that is still that isn't like that's more narrative and less like inner monologue um, has been in song. Like mm-hmm. the beginning of, I think it was uh, Throne of yep. Blood, right? Where There's they're singing about Spider's mm. Web Castle. Yeah. yeah. I think maybe that, does that happen? I haven't seen Samurai, Seven Samurai for a while. Does that ever happen in Seven Samurai? Seven Samurai? There's Seven a song Samurai? at the end of Seven Samurai. Okay. Yeah. The peasants sing. So yeah. th- uh, there's a song in uh, Hidden Fortress as well that uh, Yuki picks up on. Oh, and, and yeah, right. yeah. So yeah. I think a lot yeah. of the narration uh, and inner monologues type stuff is communicated more through song. In I think the, you're like right. Fantastic, Defeating yeah. the theme of feudal Japan of like uh, choruses of armies marching sort of thing. Um, but it's a good, that's a good point to bring up like how the story is told from a first-person perspective in this movie that I... It's not coming to me off the top of my head. John, you've seen High and Low. Does it happen in High and Low? I haven't seen it in a long time. I feel like there is some sort of narration, but I can't actually remember specifically why or what. But It's also a genre touchstone, right? Like mm-hmm. You yeah. can't have noir without the hard-boiled narration. Yeah, for sure. And so it's perfect. It was the hottest summer yeah. on record. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like, that sets us right double in where stuff. we're supposed to right. be. Yeah. And it was a stark difference. Bet- like We've seen Mifune before. He's a very talented physical performer, and he can, we- he can transition and pivot between emotions just in an instant and... I guess inner monologues, especially for his characters, haven't entirely been necessary because we he eventually learns how to act these emotions. Kurosawa writes and directs these in ways where we maybe don't need those as often. But yeah. the, the the lyrical contributions of those things that's I didn't think about that. That's really good. Can you imagine being Akira Kurosawa in? what the mid 50s and just knowing like i'm gonna write this scene and i know exactly how it's gonna play out because this guy yeah knows they're exactly so, they're so lucky to have each other right oh, like man. i keep thinking about like how how many great actors never had their kurosawa and what a shame that is like i would have loved this is a weird take uh maybe but i i really would would have loved uh keanu reeves 
to have his Kurosawa because I think that like <laughs> yeah if yeah like Keanu Reeves in the hands of a director who understood him as well as Kurosawa obviously understood Toshiro Meifume mm-hmm. it could have been like really sim- in instead we get a lot of people who don't really understand how to utilize Keanu Reeves yeah, well I guess the Wachowskis were close yes yeah, right. the Wachowskis and also I mean he, it's weird because he goes on these um, franchise films like John Wick and then Bill and Ted and stuff like that so it feels like he does have that for a while but it's just like here and there I mean I'm not feeling bad for Keanu Reeves like he has, yeah. <laughs> yeah. John Wick is great I think John, the John Wick franchise comes as close as, as, close to, as yep. yeah as best utilizing his talents than mm. I've I agree seen with that more so much. than The Matrix for sure you think I, more I, so think, I think so I think they're on par but yeah same same idea of like a consistent filmmaking style and a consistent filmmaker that seems to really... But that is just to say like how lucky Toshiro Mifune and yeah. Akira Kurosawa are to have mm-hmm. each other, yeah. right? Uh, and to, to have um, distinct I- ideas about their craft that intersect and interlink in such a uh, great way. I feel like the closest you guys probably aren't going to like this comment, but the closest we get to that these days is Tarantino and Samuel L. Jackson. Their relationship is just so tight, and like Tarantino mm-hmm. writes in a way where he exactly knows how the right. dialogue is going to get executed. Interesting. I yeah. don't know how much more he brings out of Samuel L. Jackson <laughs> than what Samuel L. Jackson's already put out, but at the same time, but like, you can tell the dialogue is relationship. so yeah, yeah. Tarantino. He writes it for. Yeah, that's not <laughs> well, a bad yeah, that's Sometimes he writes lines that should be in Samuel L. Jackson's mouth <laughs> into his own mouth, unfortunately. Yeah. Very unfortunately. Uh, yeah. I, um, DiCaprio and Scorsese, of course. But I agree. Yeah. I, I'm thinking back on this movie. I feel like I've always had a thought in my mind of, like, can't wait to find out what the next Toshiro Mifune slash Akira Kurosawa co- collaboration that I haven't seen is. And I figure one one of these days, there aren't going to be any more. Oh, like, one of tragedy. these days, I will have seen my last new Toshiro Mifune movie. And I'm like, I just, I'm so sad about that. What is it? Redbeard was the last one? Yeah, it was their last collaboration. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen, what, five or six of them now? Yeah. Uh, because he's in, I think, almost, he's in every Kurosawa movie I've seen. And they had so a falling out after Redbeard, I think. Yes. Yeah. We, I think we spoke. They reconciled their relationship much so. later in life, but they were enemies for a long time. <laughs> As it happens. Yep. You guys talked about that in Redbeard? Should we not go into it? We we talked about how he... Okay. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, cool. More, enough that we don't need to say it on this sure. podcast. Yeah. I think so. we're over anyway. Uh, anyway, maybe see Stray Dog. Because it's Please a masterpiece. It's um, it's somewhere on the internet. You can. Find I would it. maybe venture. No, do not do the internet. I do not endorse the internet. Whoa! <laughs> wow! Holy wow. shit! Sorry, I got really wild up there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I seriously, guess, people watching movies on YouTube or whatever, fuck that shit. And no offense, Jason, I know you do that. <laughs> if I can find it like legally for free, I dude. Watch there's it. no, not even if you're airplanes to your TV. I. It's just disgusting. I got, I got really David Lynch there. I'm watching movies in your Jonathan fucking iPhones. Jonathan has a gun pointed at Seriously, my head. Seriously, it pisses me off. Uh, yeah, uh, you can see Funeral Parade of Roses on You go to the library. YouTube. There you go. For free. Do it for free. Uh, it's a really good movie. Uh, no. God damn it. <laughs> uh, so that's Stray Dog. Uh, any last thoughts? Anything that anybody wrote down with that we didn't get out? That was that was orgiastic for me. I love this movie. Me too. Orgiastic. Yeah. That was a review. We said that adverse. word twice. Why do we need to say that word twice? I like that. Um... This, uh, the only other detail I'll contribute, it, we're going back to that climactic sequence. Um, I don't know if it was just a very thematically on-the-nose detail or if it was just a rush of everything happened where my eyes glossed over it, but um, on Murakami's back seemed like sweat marks that were patterned like angel wings. Um, I think, I don't remember the scene you're talking about, but I remember seeing that and okay. noting it in my head. Okay. 
Yeah, that's a great point. Mm. thing to bring up. Yeah, that film was awesome. Yeah, like I said at the beginning, I can't wait to rewatch it. Um, it and it's I don't know if the fact I, I I'm not a uh, historian. I I don't know what the initial reception to something like this or Rashomon was, where if Rashomon just buried this. Um, like internationally um, to the point where it was overlooked because it came right before Rashomon, which became a more well-known Kurosawa picture. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're listening to this and are looking for more Kurosawa, Kurosawa films to watch that aren't Seven Samurai or Rashomon, um, I think this is a pretty solid recommend from yeah. all of us, yes? Hell yeah. I yes, think, yes. Uh, yeah. Or just film noir in general. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, Absolutely. this movie out. Or if you're interested in like like Japanese uh, reconciliations with World War II or like uh, trying to parse what the war was and mm-hmm. what it meant and where they can go from here. Uh, this Straight is on. an incredible piece of... Chaser of Haosu? Chaser. If you, sure. Two very different uh, <laughs> Wow, there's a double feature yeah. Very interesting. They've got same blood, I think. A kind little of, bit of the same blood. This is indispensable, Kurosawa. Like, it I, is, you got to yeah. see it. It is a uh, staple. It should be sure. on the same level as, I think, Seven Samurai. And we studied this in film school, actually. Did you? Ooh. Yeah, that's how I think I, that was my first time seeing it. Nice. Yeah. We studied this in Drunken Angel in one class. Some, that's awesome. Somehow yeah. you'll mention that you went to film school in every single class. Somehow. I have to bring it up. I hope you do, though. My education is showing, right? <laughs> Somebody forgot yeah. between episodes three and now four. Now ask me something about math, and I won't be able to <laughs> answer. <laughs> two plus two. No, quick, quick, quick. Uh, okay. Goodbye. <laughs> uh, so that was Stray Dog. We saw it at the Trilon. We loved it. Thank you, Trilon. You guys should see it, too. You, y'all should see it, too. Um, y'all. I'm Jason. I'm Cody. I'm Harry. I'm John. Patrick Mackin. Thank you for listening very much, and uh, come back again. We'll we be hopefully closing out the Kurosawa. Yeah, saga we have three before. more, right? Mm-hmm. Three more Kurosawa's. Get ready, about. baby. There's always room for more. Bye. Bye.